So listen on as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And hear the word of God. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your word, and we ask you that as the doctrine of justification so central to our concern as Christians and so central to your concern in in revealing your own nature and inviting sinners to yourself to come and be saved by Christ your Son, that through the preaching we ask, O God, that this doctrine might be set forth with greater clarity and that you might use it as a means and an instrument to build up your church and to awaken her once more to the realities of your almighty and abounding grace through Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves here at the end of this great comparison between Christ and Adam, which began in verse 12. Uh, You could look at verses 12 through 19 uh, as a paragraph, and this is the end of the paragraph. That that is the way to view these two verses is clear uh, just from the way they begin with the word, therefore. Paul is concluding and summing up the argument. Whereas if we look at verses 20 and 21, uh, we might say that these contain more of an afterthought. Not so much a conclusion, but an epilogue, which uh, is clear from the first word in that sentence, which is moreover. Something in addition to what he's just been telling us in verses 12 through 19. Now, in expounding these verses, verses 12 through 19, we must constantly bear in mind that the greater end in view of this comparison between Christ and Adam is to substantiate beyond all question or doubt the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let us ever keep that uh, in view as we look to these verses. And not only that, but having seen that doctrine already stated so clearly in chapters 1 through 4, and especially in chapter 3, Paul is here especially concerned to stress in chapter 5 what is true of the man who has been justified. And thus he begins chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith. And keeping what has uh, just been said just before that, the end of chapter uh, 4, with respect to Abraham, We grant that Abraham was justified in the Old Covenant, and so too was David. How were they justified before God? The answer is by faith. And so chapter 4 becomes the great chapter of faith. And it ends with this assertion that all who have a faith like theirs, that is a faith like Abraham's and a faith like David's, will be justified too. Now it was written, we read, not only for his sake, that is Abraham, That it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Not only were Abraham and David justified by faith, but so too might you if you have a faith like theirs. 
But having seen that, the, the question naturally arises, which he answers in chapter 5, what then is true of those who are justified? The Abrahams, the Davids, and the believers in the new covenant. What is true of those who enjoy the gift of justification? Well, Paul's first assertion is that they have peace with God. And then they have access by faith into this grace in which they stand and so on. Just reviewing and remembering the arguments of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. In other words, the great effect and the great blessing that believers enjoy who have been justified is uh, assurance. Believers enjoy assurance. Believers are brought like Abraham to a place of certainty and assurance and great rejoicing. We are having, Paul says, verse uh, 5 of chapter 5, God's love poured into our hearts. And now we stand confidently before him as one of his children, anticipating uh, the later arguments of chapter 8. Oh, here is the great thing, Paul says, not only that we should be justified, but even beyond it, having been justified, that we would know it and that we would enjoy the gift itself. Exulting in it and rejoicing in what it means to be a Christian. Indeed, this is the greatest testimony of faith itself. That we really do believe and rely savingly on Jesus Christ for our salvation. And thus that we are sure of him as our savior. Not at all that we think that we can save ourselves. But that we are absolutely assured and persuaded that he is able to save us. And that we, having relied and trusted on him, are sure that he has saved us. And so look at it like this. The faith Paul is describing in chapter 4. The faith of the man who believes and who is justified, like Abraham, is a faith which involves assurance with respect to God himself. Or at least you could say... It is a faith which leads to assurance, which is why chapter 5 then takes up the subject of assurance, having described faith in chapter 4. It is because faith involves this and leads to this. The faith of Abraham, you may remember, contained this element of assurance and certainty, verses uh, 19 through 22, and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead. He did, uh, skipping down, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. The idea of the fully convinced, that's what we are uh, considering in chapter 5. Just this past week in Sunday school, uh, there was a quote in the handout that really struck me, uh, and it made me think especially of chapter 5, a chapter which uh, the man who wrote the quote loved, and that is Martin Luther. He was describing faith, and I found he was describing faith in exactly the way Paul describes faith in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He says, faith makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God. Joyful, confident, and happy, Martin Luther. You see, all the ingredients are present, which uh, you find in Romans chapter 5. Faith makes a man sure. Again, not with respect to himself, but with respect to God. The God who has promised is able to do what he promised. 
He's able to save me. He's able to justify me. It gives the believer confidence. It makes him joyful. You remember how uh, much Paul emphasizes joy in those 11 verses. And so the Christian, I'm now describing the way Calvin describes it. The Christian is one who is happy and assured because God is on his side and he knows it. Those last few words were the most important part. And he knows it. God and me are reconciled. This is how Calvin uh, defines faith in the Institutes. He describes faith as a firm and certain knowledge of God's good will to us, which being founded on the free promise given in Jesus Christ is revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And thus, uh, if you go on with his definition of faith, uh, he says, along with Luther, that a synonym or another word for faith is confidence, our confidence with respect to God. And if you remember, that's what Luther said. Faith makes a person joyful, confident and happy with respect to God. And so let me ask you here at this point, whether you have a faith like this, does your faith do that for you? Does it make you joyful and confident and happy with regard to God? Does it make you certain? Do you remember my definition of faith? It isn't as good as Luther or Calvin's, but my definition is my certainty that God's word is true. And so there again, you note the element of assurance in the definition of faith. And this kind of faith, Paul says, doesn't grow weak. It does not entertain doubts. It is confident. It is assured. Because it rests fully on God himself. And indeed, as Paul tells us in Romans, well, the whole book, but especially chapter 5. There is nothing that makes me as a believer so certain and assured and happy and confident in God himself. As grasping the great ground of our confidence, namely the doctrine of justification. That was Luther's conviction, that was Calvin's conviction, that was Paul's conviction, and that is my conviction. And I hope it is your conviction that the way to have assurance before God is to grasp the doctrine of justification as a personal concern. For there I am able to see, and only there, how it is that God in his wrath is pacified. How God, the great God, is propitiated and reconciled to the sinner, even one so sinful as myself. There is no single promise in all of Scripture that gives the believer such confidence as this truth. That by faith in Jesus Christ, God now regards me as just in his sight. By a simple act of believing and relying on Jesus Christ, I am regarded by God as one who is righteous and thus reconciled. Yes, and how is Jesus Christ able to justify me before God? That is the great question that Paul goes on to answer in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And if only I could grasp that by faith, then I would no doubt be sure and happy and confident, just as Luther and Calvin and Paul all describe the believer. And thus we come to the argument which Paul is summing up now in verses 18 and 19, but the argument which begins in verse 12, and this paragraph I'm referring to, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. These are not uh, great as they are. 
verses that stand on their own. They could stand on their own. We could just look at federal theology. We could do a whole Sunday school on federal theology and just look at those verses. Uh, But it's so much more valuable to work through the book of Romans and to see how Paul arrives here and why he arrives here now. The reason that Paul begins to unfold this doctrine just now, having described the happiness and the joy and the assurance of the believer in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the one who has been justified by faith, is because in these verses he presents the ground of the believer's assurance and confidence and joy in believing. It is seeing, Paul says, it is seeing Jesus Christ as the great head of a redeemed humanity. Seeing him in his federal headship as standing in my place and securing by his obedience my justification. And doing so certainly and effectually before God. And finally. And nothing makes this stand out to me with such clarity and force as seeing this comparison between Christ and Adam. Indeed, once we accept that this is how God deals with humanity, that he views and regards and deals with men as either being in Adam or in Christ, we simply need to consider what each has accomplished and done for humanity. What did Adam accomplish in my stead? What did Christ? What are the similarities? What are the differences? That's where we are. And so the formula becomes uh, in these verses, beginning in verse 12, As through the one, so also through the other. As in Adam, many things happened for humanity. So also in Christ, many things happened for humanity. What Adam did for the many, Christ in turn does likewise. And this is the formula once more that Paul begins in verse 12, but which he doesn't complete. He introduces Adam and then he has so much to say. We have that extended parenthesis in verses 13 through 17. But it is as we arrive to verses 18 and 19 that he at last completes the comparison between Adam and Christ. There was, uh, as you may remember, in verses 15 through 17, uh, a comparison between Christ and Adam. It is true. And yet there, it was not what they shared in common. This was the prior sermon two weeks ago. Uh, two weeks ago. But, uh, but rather, uh, what separated them? The ways in which uh, Christ was so much more uh, better than Adam. So it was their differences. But here in verses 18 and 19, if you could close off the parenthesis after verse 17, he resumes the thought of verse 12. And that is simply the symmetry and the parallel that exists between Christ and Adam. Again, verses 15 and 17, it really is the dissymmetry or the asymmetry. I'm not sure what the right word is there. But here it it is the symmetry, verses 12, 18, and 19. The exact correspondence between Christ and Adam in, uh, in their two respective works. But before we arrive at that... I want, to, uh, I want to say something about the differences that I didn't say last time and that I confess did not even uh, occur to me last time, but which I think are needful to say here before we get to the correspondence in verses 18 and 19. 
and I think which will help us as we get to the correspondence in those two verses. So I'm returning for a moment to verses 15 and 17 uh, and pointing out the ways in which Christ's work uh, exceeds the work of Christ. And uh, the first of these two points, and so I add this to my list from last time, is that there's no getting out of Christ. I wish I had said that last time, but, but I just have to say it now. There's no getting out of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And there is the ground of my certainty and my security as a believer. Now, this is implicit in the contrast itself. That as bad as things are in Adam, there is the possibility, thank God, of getting out of Adam. But part of the glory of being in Christ is that you are brought into a position and a possession that you cannot lose. And this becomes clear when you see that there are only two Adams. That while Christ comes after Adam and thus supersedes Adam, there is none who comes after Christ. And so you can, thank God, get beyond Adam and into Christ. But there's no getting beyond Christ. He is the last. He is the final. Adam. And once you've gotten into him by faith, there's nothing more. Nothing beyond. Nothing greater. And surely it is to deny his greater glory to suggest that there is. But as we look at Adam, we can see that he occupies a smaller place in comparison to Christ because, well, those who are in Adam might, in fact, get out of him. But those who are in Christ cannot. It's essential to see that or you will never grasp the greatness of what Paul is setting before us here. The final difference between these two men is that whereas Adam sinned only once, and I hope to explore this more in the next sermon, Christ lived a total life of obedience. It is a contrast between one single transgression and an entire life of obedience rendered unto the Father. Uh, we, re- we read about that in Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 10. Lo, I have come to do your will, he says unto the Father. As he comes into this world and through all of his life, he lives a life of perfect obedience, rendering that obedience unto the Father in accomplishment of his will, even to the point of his death. He was obedient, Paul says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. A life of total and perfect obedience. Securing by that obedience, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll say it anyway. Securing by that obedience a perfect righteousness. And thus we all benefited from his obedience. And you see, when you compare that obedience to the sin of Adam, to the single sin of Adam, you are struck once again with the much more. The altogether greater nature, not only of the person, but of the work of Jesus Christ in comparison to Adam. But bearing those uh, dissimilarities in mind, which precede the final comparison in verses 18 and 19, we come now at last to verses 18 and 19. And, And they will occupy us for the remainder of this sermon and then the following sermon as well, God willing. The basic formula, uh, once more, is simply, as in Adam, even so Christ in Christ. How Adam and Christ stood in the same position over humanity. And how, as a result, all was made to depend on their obedience. To the covenant in which they stood as federal heads. Now you ask at this point, how does this help me? 
Well, it helps me a great deal, for it causes me to see with perfect clarity how Christ, by his righteousness, is able to justify me before God. Why it is on the cross that he might die for my sins, and that by his perfect life I might be justified. It's because ever since Adam, that's how God has been dealing with humanity. And so, of course, the Savior would occupy the same place. I cannot think of anything that is more helpful to the believer in attaining an assurance with respect to Christ than seeing this point. If we look closely at what is being said here, we notice that in this close correspondence between Adam and Christ, there is still a contrast being made. They correspond perfectly, but as opposites, the two points and the two persons. Exact opposites. So the real essence of the teaching here is this. That what Adam lost by his sin, Christ gained by his obedience. What Adam lost by his sin, Christ gained by his obedience. And thus the contrast uh, which is being presented here in the parallel and the symmetry between Christ and Adam is uh, the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ. And so we look first at Adam. And on the side of Adam, we have two statements. Verse 18, by one man's offense, judgment of condemnation came to all men. And verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Those are the two statements with respect to Adam. And I might note four things here about those two statements. First, uh, we notice the varied expressions of the offense, verse 18, and the disobedience, verse 19, Uh, These amount to the same thing. They both refer to the same event. The single transgression of Adam in the garden. When he disobeyed. And they tell us what was the result of that single sin for mankind. Namely. The judgment of condemnation and many were made sinners. Second. We notice again, and here as clearly as ever in all of the verses, the solidarity that existed between Adam and mankind. The many were involved in the transgression of the one. That's what I mean when I speak of the solidarity. All of us, as Adam's children, were caught up in his sin, and we suffer the consequences for his sin. By his single sin, many were condemned, and many were made sinners. That is the teaching. The many are now that Adam has sinned, placed in a position of condemnation before God. They are placed as well in the position as being regarded by God as sinners. Not by their own sin. What placed them there. What made them sinners, what placed them in a state of condemnation before God was Adam's sin. And their relationship to him. Uh, That is the sense in which we speak of the solidarity between the many and the one. And the grammar itself points strongly in this direction. Uh, If you look at the way it is put. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Uh, Likewise, verse 19, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Paul is speaking of the instrumentality of Adam's sin in our condemnation and in the fact that we were made sinners. It's through the one man and especially through and by 
his single sin. There is uh, the doctrine of solidarity between the many and the one. Uh, And the value of seeing this, I hope, is clear uh, when we get to the other side, to Christ. But we'll leave that there for now. Uh, The third point I would notice is uh, the idea of condemnation suddenly stands at the forefront. The word did occur in verse 16, but uh, if you've been following the argument up until now, uh, in verses 12 through 17, uh, the primary effect of Adam's sin with respect to the many has been death. That has been most prominent in the teaching. The one man sins, the many die. Even those who did not sin in the likeness of the one. Death came to all as a result of Adam's sin. But here as he brings the teaching home, it is not the fact of death but condemnation that Paul stresses. The fact once more that Adam's single transgression brought me and all of you and the whole world into an estate of condemnation Before God. And the reason that this now is uh, so important to stress and to emphasize is because it is precisely this that justification answers. The resurrection admittedly answers the fact of death. But justification more narrowly answers the fact of condemnation. And how did condemnation come about? After all. It was through the one man's sin and my relationship to him and justification on the other side. If we are to appreciate the contrast is the exact opposite of condemnation. And thus, uh, Paul later says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, in describing the glory of the believers, a place as one who has now been justified. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who stand now in him and not in Adam. All who stand in Adam are condemned. But those who are in Christ, no condemnation. I hope you're beginning to appreciate the value of the contrast at work. Finally, my fourth observation with respect to Adam's side of the equation is the force of this word made. We are told by his single act of disobedience of the garden, the many were made sinners. I was made a sinner. You were made a sinner because Adam sinned. And what, after all, does that mean? Well, it might not surprise you to find out that this single word is the subject of quite a bit of debate. In fact, uh, really, it's what uh, this word, uh, you could say, stood at the center of the uh, dispute between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches in the Reformation. Well, I won't give the false view. I'll only give what I believe is the true view. And I will notice, you could imagine what the false view is once I've said what the true view is. But you you will notice it occurs on both sides. Because again, it's the parallel and the symmetry that we're noticing now. Not the much more. But the exact correspondence. Through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through Christ's obedience, the many were made righteous. It's the same word. What does the word made mean here? How did Adam's sin make me a sinner? Well, let me just note, if it wasn't clear already, the word must convey the same meaning on both sides. And the word, it turns out, if you were to take any trouble to study it, you would discover it means something like this. It carries the sense of to regard as or to treat as. To be placed in the category of Adam sinned And we are made sinners. We are made, that is, to stand in the place of sinners. 
We are placed in this category and we are regarded and treated by God as sinners along with Adam. Note, not from the moment we sin. That is not the moment God begins to regard us as sinners. That's the Pelagian heresy. But the moment that God begins to regard you and me as sinners was the moment that our father sinned, Adam. And it was at that moment that he began to regard and to treat and to place all mankind in the category of sinners. He thus made us sinners in that sense. The sense of designating or appointing or putting in the position of, uh, uh, just as an illustration, Christ uses this word when he says in Luke Luke chapter 12, man who made me judge over you. That is, who placed me in the category of a judge? Who appointed me? Well, so much for Adam. The really important point to grasp is how on every point, Christ's work answers to Adam's. It corresponds with an exact symmetry that brings a full restoration of what Adam lost. And even more besides. But that, as I've said, is really the teaching of the prior verses. Here it is the symmetry we notice. So we come to the other side of the parallel. And we notice what Christ achieves by his obedience. By one man's righteousness, justification of life to many, verse 18. And by one man's obedience, uh, sorry, by one man's righteousness, verse 18, then by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, verse 19. Again, you notice the symmetry when you take it together. Whatever was lost in Adam by his disobedience, we regain in Christ by his obedience. Where Adam brought condemnation, Christ brings justification. Where Adam made many sinners, Christ will make many righteous. And thus we must treat this side of the equation in exactly the same way, making the same four observations. First, we notice that his obedience is stressed. It is stated variously, but it amounts to the same thing. And how helpful it is here uh, to view Christ's work like this. And of course, it is exactly right to speak once more, not only of the sufferings of Christ, but the obedience of Christ and to realize that our view of his work is inadequate until we can. Jesus comes once more, and I hope to say much more of this in the coming sermon. He comes in obedience to the father's will. He comes to do the will of the father. And he achieves that will on every point and under the sorest and the severest of trials and temptations. But it was his good will to do the ple- uh, uh, or good pleasure, I mean, to do the will of the father. And obedience, which included even his death. Yes, he was obedient even to the point of death once more. And in obedience, let us see, which he rendered unto God on our behalf, since in Adam we fell. That is why he obeyed. But when Christ came as the second Adam, he secured and achieved a perfect righteousness which means he obeyed the law perfectly and entirely. On every point where we failed, he succeeded. And it is this righteousness that he imputes to the believer in justification, the righteousness of of his obedience. Second, we notice again the solidarity between the one and the many. 
Yes, the one man sins and the many are condemned. But thank God that isn't the whole story. For there is, Paul says, another Adam. And one altogether greater and better than the first. And his obedience is righteous and perfect. And by his obedience, the many are justified. The many will enjoy the benefits and the blessings of his work, just as so many others suffered the penalty of Adam's sin. Yes, and third, you see, justification is the perfect counterpart to condemnation. Just as Paul stresses the state of condemnation that resulted from Adam's sin, he is quick to add, by the one man's obedience, many will be justified. By by his obedience and righteousness, those who are his are taken out of the realm of condemnation and they are placed into the realm of justification and life. And this stands out most clearly under the fourth heading, Where we find once more the word made. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Let us us be sure to give it the same force as before. If Adam's sin placed the many into the category of sinners. So that God now regards them as sinners. And he condemns them as sinners. And they die as sinners. Who belong to the class of sinners. So now by Christ's obedient righteousness, the many who stand in solidarity with him by faith are now regarded by God as righteous. They are made righteous in that sense. They are made to belong to that class of righteous persons along with Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, is what justification means for the sinner. It means that he is no longer regarded by God as a sinner, but that he is regarded by God as a righteous person. Not because he is now made personally righteous. That's the Roman Catholic heresy. He isn't. Paul already told us in Romans chapter 4 that God justifies the ungodly. That is those who are personally sinful. And yet through Jesus Christ and their solidarity with him, he regards them even in their sinfulness. As righteous in Jesus Christ. The one who has faith. Is in Christ. And thus he is regarded by God as possessing. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ. As having achieved an obedience which satisfies the demands of the law. And thus we notice once more. Noting again the grammar. The words by and through. That what is instrumental in our justification. The thing that causes God to declare the verdict righteous with respect to the sinner. Is the obedience of Jesus Christ. The obedience and the righteousness of the one man. Jesus Christ. Of this I will have more to say in the coming sermon. But for now I simply ask what is the effect of it all? What is the effect of grasping this great comparison between Christ and Adam? Is it not, beloved, that we might see how objectively certain our salvation and our justification is if we have faith? If we but place our trust in Christ. Here we are dealing 
Paul tells us with the realm uh, of objective fact. Not of feelings, not of subjectivity, but of objective fact. How it is God views the world. How is it he deals with man at the bar of his justice? Look on the side of Adam. And you will see, once more, an account of facts. Not a mere theory, but an account of facts. You will see that sin and death spread to all by his single sin. For how else do you explain the universality of these things if not by Adam's sin? There is no other explanation. Again, this is not a matter of opinion. It is the revealed facts of scripture. This is how God deals with man. And this is why things are as they are. This is why men die. This is why men sin. This is why men go to hell. But just as soon as you see this, you realize that you are dealing uh, with the realm of objective fact. Look to the other side and realize that we may be equally certain and indeed much more so that if before God I stand in Jesus Christ, that righteousness and life and justification will come to me just as surely as sin, death and condemnation came to me through Adam. These things now, righteousness, life, and justification are my solid and sure possessions before God. I now stand in Christ and I can never get out of Christ. Thank God for that. Cease, therefore, to think of your relation to God solely in terms of yourself and your own works and your own sin. And begin, as Paul teaches us here, to think of yourself as standing before God. As, as either in one of uh, these two men, either in Adam or in Christ. And realize that if you are in Christ, that all that was true of you in Adam is true of you no more. But in the place of condemnation and sin and death is righteousness, life and justification. That is the way, beloved, to have assurance. And may, may God grant it to all who have faith. Amen. And let us now come to the table. Matthew 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, let me just do something a little bit different today, and let me uh, read this little wonderful summary of the sacrament from our book, which I don't ordinarily do, but I thought I might do it this time. The, uh, let's see, that's baptism. Let's get the right sacrament. There we are. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again. It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but is a remembrance of the once for all sacrifice of himself and his death for our sins. 
Nor is it a mere memorial to Christ's sacrifice. It is a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected and exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit through faith. Thus, he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and in our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The bread and wine represent the crucified body and the shed blood of the Savior, which he gave for the people. In the sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful and true to fulfill promises of his covenant. And he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation to renew renewed consecration and to a more faithful obedience. The supper is also a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his body. As scripture says, for we are uh, or, or for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The supper anticipates the consummation of the ages when Christ returns to gather all his redeemed people at the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to crucify uh, the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow uh, Christ as becomes those who bear his name. Well, I'm also supposed to give a word of warning as I fence the table from behind, not in front. I won't bar any from coming or from partaking. That is a matter for you uh, to settle. It's a matter of faith before the Lord. But if, if in what I just described, you say, that's what I want then I think that you have faith uh, and, and I think that you I think you ought to come. But if, if you can listen to such a description with cold indifference, uh, then I really must warn and urge you not to come. For we are dealing uh, with the things of God. And as Paul says in First Corinthians 10, uh, are we stronger than he? No, we are not. And we must not come to his table and, and, and deal as with trifles or, or worse to treat it as though it is the table of demons and of the world. These things are sacred and they are holy and they are to be treated by such as the people of God. But to such as have such faith, here is something which is holy and which they wish, wish to partake of and to be strengthened by. And all who have such faith, I ask you to come. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of the Lord's Supper uh, and the gift of preaching. Uh, both, as always, we, 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 along with the world, regard as contemptible outwardly. There, there's just no strength at all in either of them. Just like a crucified body on a cross. And yet in these very things, we, we, we find the power of God on display. And we delight in that. That hidden divine strength clothed in human weakness. We thank you for that, O oh Lord. And only, only a mind as wise as yours could have ever devised something so, uh, so beautiful. You work by contrasts and, 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 and you shame the wisdom of man and you, you exalt the faith of the faithful. God, grant us faith. Seal us in our faith through the sacrament. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen.